Hey, this is Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to Bill O'Reilly. Since you're a fan of hearing the truth, I thought you might like my new podcast, The American Campfire Revival. We're sparking a national revival in the hearts of Americans with a focus on faith, history, patriotism, and the Bible. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. What we're talking about is the actual battle plan that God gave to us that transforms the human heart, transforms families, and ultimately transforms nation. These things we're talking about are 100% essential and they're nation changing. I think one of the things we've, we've forgotten is that God doesn't just change individuals, he changes nations. And the United States of America was one of those nations that was so unique in the history of the world. And so we're gonna talk about these ideas that we're discussing today. Ideas are perhaps the most important thing in the world. Some dictators in the past have said things like, ideas are more powerful than guns. If we don't give people guns, why would we give them ideas? Ideas have great consequences. And when ideas are used as the starting point for the battle of the control of the hearts and minds of people, the battle of leadership around the world always start with ideas and then those ideas have great consequences. If an idea captures the minds of the youth, no matter if it's a good idea or a bad idea, once it roots itself in the minds of young people, that can often start uh, a transformation of society, a revolution, if you will. And it begins to spread, not just into the schools, but into all aspects of society. Uh, ideas have consequences. We have forgotten the principles that not only made us such a great nation in history, but can reform us again. We need a rebirth and a reformation of those principles and ideas that made us so great in the first place. I wanna give you a, a, a quick example of how ideas can change a nation. There was a small group of uh, only five men in 1905 who met in a loft above a restaurant in New York. They were meeting in lower Manhattan and some of these guys actually turned out to be quite famous. You've heard of uh, Upton Sinclair, a young 27 year old socialist You've also got um, Jack London, the famous writer, and Clarence Darrow, the famous lawyer. These were socialists, along with a couple of others, and they would begin to meet in this loft and discuss their ideas called socialism. And it was handed down to them by a guy named Karl Marx. And as they, they began to formulate their mission and their purpose, they, their stated purpose was, quote, they were to promote an intelligent interest in socialism among college men and women. They wanted to promote an intelligent interest in socialism. We've, we've heard about that, right? Well, history has a lot to say about socialism and how disastrous it has been, but they were going to start at the college level and get young men and women interested in it, and it worked. They were incredibly successful. Let me read to you just how successful they were. They used a method called gradualism, which means you slowly give them a little bit more, a little bit more. You start with a premise that sounds like everyone's equal, everyone's gonna be fair. Uh, and then you slowly begin to, to ramp it up into the full flower of what it really is. 
It's kind of like the frog in the pot. How do you boil a frog in a pot? Well, you don't stick him in boiling water, he'll just jump out. You put him in, in water that's very comfortable and pleasant, and then you slowly put a little flame there and raise the temperature one degree at a time. It's in fact so slow that the frog doesn't realize that it's warming up. It eventually gets him tired and lethargic. It's like being in a jacuzzi too long. And by the time he realizes it's too hot, it's too dangerous, it's too late because he's too tired, he's too worn out and he has no strength to jump out of the pot and he's cooked. And that's exactly what they did with socialism in America. Check this out, by 1912, there were 44 chapters in 44 colleges. By 1917, there were 61 chapters in schools and 12 chapters in graduate schools. And then by the mid-1930s, there were 125 chapters of student study groups studying and promoting this idea called socialism across college campuses. And John Dewey became the president of their society. All of this socialist progressive ideas started in the schools and it took like wildfire and eventually became the dominant view in replacement of biblical Christianity, which formed the most prosperous culture here in America. Not just in the church, but in business, in arts and entertainment, and in everywhere. And now, we, as people of faith, we are on the defense. Have you noticed that? We're not the dominant force in our culture. We're now backpedaling. We feel like we're, we're being pushed back to our own 10-yard line and our own 5-yard line, and we wonder, if the game has been lost. And that's because we failed, we've abandoned our original command from God. We have abandoned the cultural mandate that God gave us, and that is not to run from the culture. When you abandon leadership in the culture, it gets filled by those who have worse ideas. And now we are, are having to be subject to people with worse ideas than God's good and healthy ideas. And we, consigned ourselves to this little subculture where we've become less and less effective to promoting health and prosperity across the world. The battle of ideas is the most dangerous place to be because it's the most effective. And the enemies know that. And it's only a few brave men and women who will actually engage in the arena of ideas. The loving creator has given us his ways and his ideas, and those always produce the very best consequences and results. And if we have those ideas, and we are armed with the truth of God's word and the example of our forefathers, we can return and renew the culture and the goodness and the spiritual health in the very best possible ways. But you know, people of faith, sad to say, have, have been duped by well-educated people who don't have faith that learn how to use the just the, the tricky questions or the phrases that guilt us into compliance or submission or relegating ourselves outside of the public square. And, and they'll say things like, well, you, you want a theocracy. What you're talking about with faith being involved uh, in the public square or in government is, is basically uh, a theocracy or a church, uh, I'm sorry, a, a church-run government. Well, that's the furthest from what we want. But, but some Christians, because they don't know their history, think that those are the only two options. Either we have a church-run country, which we know we don't want, but we think the only other option is, well, then no God at all. Just a secular government, a secular society, and everybody can do their own thing in private. 
Well, we know where that leads. Uh, you actually don't end up with no religion. You actually end up with a different religion called secular humanism. And we could look through history to, to, to look at all those statistics of the death and destruction produced by secular humanism. Because ultimately man sets himself up as the ultimate authority and causes everyone else to bow down to them. Uh, those are evil dictators. Now, there's a third option that, that I want to tell you about, and our founders understood this. There's a third option that allows justice and freedom for all people, brings blessing to everyone, both believers and unbelievers. And to understand the answer uh, to what that is, we got to ask the question, what is the, the meaning of the separation of church and state? The separation of church and state it was a personal phrase used by Thomas Jefferson in a personal letter to someone who was a person of faith uh, in a group of Baptists and Congregationalists uh, from Danbury, Connecticut. And they asked him his position on what is the role of government with regard to the church. And what he said is, no, 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 you don't have to worry about a king controlling the church or an official government church because there is, a, there is a wall that keeps the government from reaching in and telling you, the church, what to do. The king's not gonna come in and, and declare that you're the, the, the official government church. And what protected the church from the government sticking its, its controlling hands into the church? This wall of separation between church and state, as Jefferson put it. Those who wanna take God out of everything have used the separation of church and state to say it's, it's, it's unconstitutional. And it couldn't be more wrong. That's exactly the opposite. Faith in America supports the government. The government is to stay out of the church's business. That's the real meaning of the separation of church and state. Hey, thanks for listening to this preview of my new podcast, The American Campfire Revival. If you were inspired by what you just heard, please subscribe to the American Campfire Revival podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.